We're reading today from Exodus 28. I will suffer the pregnant ladies and those with low blood pressure to sit if they need to. It is a long chapter. I wanted to read the whole thing in order to emphasize to you the seriousness with which God takes clothing. So these are God's words. And bring thou near unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother, for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aaron's garments to sanctify him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And these are the garments which they shall make. A breastplate and an aphod, or an apron, and a robe and a coat of checker work, a turban and a sash. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron thy brother and his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And they shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet and the fine linen. And they shall make the aphod of gold, of blue and purple, scarlet and fine twined linen, the work of the skillful workman. It shall have two shoulder pieces joined to the ends, the two ends thereof, that it may be joined together, and the skillfully woven band which is upon it, wherewith to gird it on, shall it be like the work thereof and of the same piece, of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet and fine twined linen. And thou shalt take two onyx stones, and grave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the six that remain on the other stone, according to their birth. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, shalt thou engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. Thou shalt make them to be enclosed in settings of gold. And thou shalt put the two stones upon the shoulder pieces of the aphod to be stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before Yahweh upon his two shoulders for a memorial. And thou shalt make settings of gold and two chains of pure gold, like cords shalt thou make them of wreathen work. And thou shalt put the wreathen chains on the settings. And thou shalt make a breastplate of judgment, the work of the skillful workman. Like the work of the aphod, thou shalt make it of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine twined linen, thou shalt make it. Square it, be, uh, square it shall be, and double. A span shall it be the length thereof, and a span the breadth thereof. And thou shalt set in it settings of stones, four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncles shall be the first row, and the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row a beryl, and an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be enclosed in gold in their settings. And the stones shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, every one according to his name. They shall be for the twelve tribes." And thou shalt make upon the breastplate chains like cords of wreathen work of pure gold. And thou shalt make upon the breastplate two rings of gold, and shalt put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. And thou shalt put the two wreathen chains of gold in the two rings at the ends of the breastplate, and the other two ends of the wreathen chains thou shalt put on the two settings, and put them on the shoulder pieces of the aphod in the forepart thereof. And thou shalt make two rings of gold, and thou shalt put them upon the two ends of the breastplate, upon the edge thereof, which is toward the side of the aphid inward. And thou shalt make two rings of gold, and put them on the two shoulder pieces of the aphod underneath, in the forepart thereof, close by the coupling thereof, above the skillfully woven band of the aphod. And they shall bind the breastplate by the rings thereunto, uh, thereof unto the rings of the aphod with a lace of blue, 
that it may be upon the skillfully woven band of the aphod, and that the breastplate be not loosed from the aphod. And Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart, when he goeth in unto the holy place, for a memorial before Yahweh continually. And thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before Yahweh. And Aaron shall bear the judgment of the sons of Israel upon his heart before Yahweh continually. And thou shalt make the robe of the ephod all of blue, and it shall have a hole for the head in the midst thereof. It shall have a binding of woven work around about the whole of it, as it were the, the whole of a coat of mail, that it be not rent. And upon the skirts of it thou shalt make pomegranates of blue and of purple and of scarlet, round about the skirts thereof, and bells of gold between them round about, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, upon the skirts of the robe round about. And it shall be upon Aaron to minister, and the sound thereof shall be heard when he goeth in unto the holy place before Yahweh, and when he cometh out, that he die not. And thou shalt make a plate of pure gold, and grave upon it like the engravings of a signet, holy to Yahweh. And thou shalt put it on a lace of blue, and it shall be upon the turban. Upon the forefront of the turban it shall be. And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the sons of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall be always upon his forehead that they may be accepted before Yahweh. And thou shalt weave the coat in checkerwork of fine linen, and thou shalt make a turban of fine linen, and thou shalt make a sash, the work of the embroider. And for Aaron's sons, thou shalt make coats, and thou shalt make for them sashes, and headdresses shalt thou make for them, for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt put them upon Aaron thy brother, and upon his sons with him, and shalt anoint them, and consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office." Thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover the flesh of their nakedness. From the loins, even unto the thighs, they shall reach. And they shall be upon Aaron and upon his sons when they go in unto the tent of meeting, or when they come near unto the altar to minister in the holy place, that they bear not the iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever unto him and unto his seed after him. These are God's words. Please be seated. Today we are continuing with understanding the practical do's and don'ts of worship from the pattern that Scripture provides. Last week we saw what you might call the major beats of worship, the major parts, the order of worship, how Scripture patterns this for us, and of course how Scripture orders them for us so that we would know what sequence to do these things in. Just as important to do the right things in worship and to do them in the right order because it's not just the, the parts of worship that have meaning, but rather the particular sequence in which we do them also has a meaning. The way that they are put together means something. It would mean something quite different if we were to place our confession, for instance, at the end of the service rather than at the beginning as we were leaving God's presence rather than coming into it. It would be very hard to understand, actually, what would... What would that signify? In the same way, it would make no sense at all to place the call to worship at the end or to put the commission at the beginning. In this regard, the old saying is true, the medium is the message. In other words, how we do and say things communicates meaning just as much as what we do and say. 
Today I want to focus on one very important but I think overlooked way in which the medium is the message, something that we do without really thinking about it, or I think most people do without thinking about it, perhaps you guys are different, something that communicates very loudly without needing any words, and something that we literally cannot avoid doing in worship, which means that we really ought to think it through very carefully. Obviously, I'm talking about what we wear. Now, our passage today makes sense, right? I want you to be able to think clearly about the clothes that we wear in worship so that you can choose them intentionally. Our goal is to create a Christian culture, not to simply ape whatever culture we happen to be living in, but to create an intentional culture of our own. And clothing is an enormous part of culture. So it will not do to unthinkingly follow whatever we kind of pick up from uh, outside, whatever we assume is normal or acceptable, whether it's a traditional Sunday best or the kind of casual dress that is common in most churches today. We cannot simply adopt these things without thought. This is not something we want to pick up by osmosis with no real idea of why we're doing it. I want us to have a good awareness of what we do in worship and why and in every respect so that we are able to participate in doing it with full knowledge and assent rather than merely with a kind of subconscious trust that it all makes sense to someone. I trust that our reading today has at least, at least made it clear that God is not indifferent to clothing. I have heard one Kiwi Reformed pastor, who shall remain nameless, say that we, what we wear in church does not really matter in the least because, bear with me here, Jesus was acceptable to God while he hung naked on the cross. Well, the obvious conclusion of that logic is that we may attend church naked, and I trust that you all agree that this would not really be acceptable worship to God. But this is the level at which I'm afraid many pastors and many congregants are operating here in New Zealand. Perhaps more, more accurately to say, it is the level to which they will stoop in order to avoid requiring whatsoever, anything whatsoever, of their congregations. I'm convinced that most of these men do not say such foolish things because they really believe them but because they are afraid that if they were to actually tell their people what God requires of them, what God's standards are, their congregations would not put up with it. And since they are being paid by these congregations, their livelihoods depend on not too much disturbing their preferences with God's preferences. And there are many people in congregations around New Zealand, I'm afraid, who do not fear God, and there are also many pastors in congregations around New Zealand who do not fear God, and usually it is some combination of the two. My hope is that this would never be the case here. When I stand up here, I stand not in my own authority, not as one representing himself and his opinions, but in the authority of God as his representative. This is why when Paul tells us that it is a good thing to aspire to the office of shepherd, that it is noble James, nonetheless, counterbalances this by warning that not many should desire to be teachers, for teachers will receive a heavier judgment. How could they not? Those who stand before the congregation to deliver the words of God 
to speak on behalf of God, to convey the requirements of God, to represent the will and the way of God, we will certainly be held accountable if we fail to do so accurately. I say hard things up here sometimes. It's not because I have an edgy personality, although I confess that makes it easier sometimes. And not because I am a closet authoritarian. I truly have no desire to make other people do my will. And not because I don't care what people think about me. I frequently care too much. But because I dare not do otherwise. I dare not tell you other than God's will. At least as best as I can discern it after carefully seeking it out. I dare not lay out for you anything other than God's ways as he has shown them to me. I'm already a fallible sinner inclined by my flesh to misunderstand the word of God and to seek your approval rather than his. I am keenly aware of my failings in this, although no doubt not nearly aware enough. And no doubt I'm getting quite enough unintentionally wrong thanks to the weakness of my flesh. I'm not going to add to these failings by preaching what is intentionally wrong, that which I know is foolish or false in order to tickle your ears or to intentionally gain your approval at the expense of God's. So I must tell you that what you wear to church does matter. This is for the very same reason that the order of our worship matters. The medium is the message. Exodus 28, as you have seen, is entirely devoted to extended and detailed instructions about the garments of the priests, exactly what they are to be and how they are to be made, down to their underwear. And it is not the only place in Scripture either. Exodus 39 is very much in the same vein, another long chapter devoted to details about clothing. Now, of course, I'm not going to tell you that we should be reproducing the priestly garments of the Old Covenant. That is not my point in reading this to you. Hopefully that is obvious after everything that we have learned already. These things, these clothes, like the physical temple itself, were types and shadows. They were models of heavenly realities which are spiritual. Whatever these various items of clothing symbolize, and I'm not going to try to get into that today specifically, they are primarily fulfilled spiritually in our worship already, and most especially in our high priest, the Lord Jesus. So these are not instructions in Exodus 28 for how Christians are to dress in worship, but they were written for our instruction, as Paul tells us in another place. So what do we learn from the great attention that God devotes to the clothing of the priests? And not just here, Exodus 39, as I said, also all about priestly garments. There are lots of places in Scripture where clothing is discussed. A great many words are spent on it. It's clearly something that matters to God. What instruction should we take from it? If we are indeed a holy priesthood created to offer up spiritual sacrifices, I think we need to pay careful attention to what Scripture says about the clothing of the priests in the Old Covenant who prefigured us and the clothing of those involved in sacrifices. Now, we could get deep into the minutiae of every meaning of every piece of clothing, but I think that would really miss the forest for the trees. That isn't actually the point that we need to take away right now. The lesson for us today is really much more simple and fundamental. Clothing communicates. Clothing is a visible expression of something. 
And this is summarized in Exodus 28 itself, where we see in verse 40, For Aaron's sons thou shalt make coats, and thou shalt make them sashes and headdresses. And what is the reason that God gives? He says, for glory and for beauty. What are they for? For glory and for beauty. That is what they do. They, they communicate glory and beauty. Their form expresses these things. So clothing is symbolic. Do you remember what a symbol is? The simple definition that I use. A symbol is a physical expression of a spiritual reality. So clothing expresses spiritual realities. Different kinds of clothes express different kinds of things. Isaiah 61.3, for instance, speaks of garments of praise, clothes that you would wear for the specific purpose of celebration or festivity. Or think of a uniform. When you see someone wearing a blue uniform, you know something about that person, and you know something especially spiritually about him in the sense that you owe him respect as God's minister of justice. And you know that without him having to tell you, you know that because of his clothing. In the same way, the priestly garments expressed glory and beauty, and of course our own clothes, whether we're in worship or out of worship, also express something. So the question is, what should we be expressing in worship, and what kind of clothes will do that job? Should our clothes also express glory and beauty since we are a holy priesthood? Well, if you know your Bible well, and you've made this connection perhaps, you're probably puzzling right now, because 1 Timothy 2, 9-10 seems to actually forbid glory and beauty in our clothing. It requires that women adorn themselves in appropriate clothing, so there is an appropriate clothing for church, with modesty and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which becometh women professing godliness through good works." Is this not somewhat strange? Are women not part of the holy priesthood? Or has something significantly changed between the Old and the New Testaments? Here is what is going on. When we compare 1 Timothy 2 to 1 Corinthians 11, we discover that the central reason for women to wear modest clothing in worship is because of whose glory is supposed to be on display 1 Corinthians 11.7 says, For a man indeed ought not to have his head veiled, forasmuch as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. The man is the glory of God, and he should not be covered in worship. Why is that? Because worship is where God's glory should be on display. But the woman being made for the man is the glory of man, and her hair in turn is her glory, and these should not be on display. Now, contrary to the feminist idea that wearing a head covering in worship is humiliating, actually what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2 indicates that a woman, and especially her hair, is so glorious that for her to show off her full glory in worship would be a kind of embodied blasphemy. Because she would look to be competing with God himself for beauty and majesty. Women are the crown of creation and a very glorious crown indeed. And so it would be immodest for them to not cover that glory in the throne room of God where all eyes should be on him. 
does this mean that men should wear glorious clothing and the women must not? Well, not exactly. There is something else that we must take into account. Under the Old Covenant system, the priests wore very glorious clothing as representatives of God. But remember, their purpose was highly symbolic. We do not have such a symbolic worship because we do not need the physical expression. We have access through Christ to the spiritual reality in the heavenly places. But perhaps more importantly, we are all priests in a way that was not true of Israel. We are all authorized to enter the holy place, and not just the holy place, but the holy holy place, the holy of holies, which was never the case for laymen under the old covenant. Now, because of this remarkable priesthood of all believers, it would be inappropriate for some of us to wear extremely glorious clothes like Aaron did, while others only wear ordinary clothes, because what would that communicate? would tell us, subconsciously at least, that some are better or higher priests than others, that some have greater access to God or represent God more in worship than others. But this would divide the body rather than uniting it, which is the focus of the second part of 1 Corinthians 11. If you look at verses 20 to 22 especially, when therefore ye assemble yourselves together, it is not possible to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What, have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and put them to shame that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I praise you not." Do you see how this same principle applies to clothing as to food? In the Corinthian church, they were celebrating the Lord's Supper as a full meal, and the wealthy were bringing extravagant packed lunches and feasting it up and getting drunk, while the slaves and the destitute went hungry, sitting next to them, because they couldn't bring anything or couldn't bring enough. It was a great shame to the church that this was happening. But in the same way, If those in the church who are wealthy dress up for worship in tuxes and evening gowns with gold jewelry and Rolexes, while those who are poor have only their jeans and a warehouse button-up shirt, will the poor not be put to shame? And by the way, this is not an argument against the minister wearing a uniform to communicate that he is a special representative of God in worship, Um, but that's a, a topic that will take us a little far off course today. I want to be thinking about what we all wear as a body in worship. In that regard, there is a bit of a strange tension between modesty on the one hand and bringing our best to God on the other. I believe we see this tension in 2 Samuel 6 with David and his wife Michal, who is Saul's daughter. Remember how we talked about when Uzo was struck dead for touching the ark and What happens after that? David holds off, moving the ark for a while. But then he does bring the ark up to Jerusalem properly, the way God instructed, carrying it on the poles. And he does so with much celebration. And in this passage, we read a puzzling little story. So this is 2 Samuel 6, and I'm picking out a few different verses to kind of piece it together for you. David danced before Yahweh with all his might, and David was girded with a linen aphod. And it was so as the ark of Yahweh came into the city of David that Michal, the daughter of Saul, 
looked out of the window and saw David leaping and dancing before Yahweh, and she despised him in her heart. Then David returned to bless his household. Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. And David said to Michal, It was before Yahweh who chose me above thy father and above all his house to appoint me prince over the people of Yahweh, over Israel. Therefore will I play before Yahweh, and I will be yet more vile than this, and will be base in my own sight. But of the handmaids of whom thou hast spoken, of them shall I be had in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. What is going on here? I think that what we are seeing is that David dressed down to worship before God. Michal is clearly cursed by God for her response to David, so we should assume that what David did, which she so despised, was in fact godly. Michal was evidently the kind of woman who would wear gold-braided hair and costly jewels to worship, and she was ashamed that her husband, the king, wore nothing but a simple linen garment in front of his servants. You notice what she says, how glorious today you were, sarcasm. He was not sufficiently glorious in her eyes. It was beneath him. Even worse, he danced about in this unseemly and undignified manner, completely unfitting for a man of his station. What a disgusting and wanton display. He might as well have been naked in her eyes. I won't comment on the place of dancing and worship today, but I think we might find that it is more appropriate than many of us are comfortable with. The point is that David dressed down for worship in a way that his wife thought made him look basically naked. Why would he do such a thing? I think the reason must be in order to not vaunt himself over the other worshippers, to not shame them with his ostentatious kingly clothing that they could not match, and possibly also to emphasize his lowliness before God, to not compete with God's glory. Rather, he wanted to emphasize the unity of the body, that before God, he is as any other Israelite. He has no special status, even though he was chosen by God to lead his people. Spiritually, they are all on the same plane. And this is not to eliminate class distinctions, of course. It does not mean that it is a sin for those who can afford better clothes to wear better clothes to worship. I'm sure that David's linen ephod was very fine compared to what many of the people were able to afford. But David did dress down for worship. Meanwhile, Jesus, a middle-class carpenter, dressed up. He wore a costly, seamless robe to the Passover before his crucifixion. It's John 19.23. The fact that it was seamless tells us it was expensive because it's actually quite hard to make seamless robes. So I'm not suggesting that we should all wear only what the poorest of us can afford. On the contrary, actually, if we were to live as Christians, I would suggest that if you notice your brother cannot afford good Sunday clothes, and you can, the thing to do would be to offer to buy some for him. Bring him up, don't bring the rest down. But James instructs us in how to navigate these kinds of differences in wealth by reminding us that the brother of low degree should glory in his high estate, that is, in his being raised up with Christ, and the rich should glory in that he is made low, that is, in his taking up the cross and following Christ. 
And he reminds us in chapter 2, my brothers, hold not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come into your synagogues a man of the gold ring and fine clothing, and there come in also a poor man in vile clothing, and ye have regard to him that weareth the fine clothing, and say, Sit thou here in a good place. And ye say to the poor man, Sit thou there, or sit under my footstool. Do ye not make distinctions among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, did not God choose them that are poor as to the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to them that love him. But ye have dishonored the poor man. That's James 2, 1 to 6. The principle, of course, is not that what you wear does not matter, but that your wealth does not make you better than others, and your poverty does not make you lower than others. The body of Christ is not divided by financial status, and one man's Sunday best should not be judged against another's. With all that said, I do use the term Sunday best because scripture really does teach such an idea. It clearly patterns that when you worship, you either wash your clothes if you don't have anything better to wear or you change your clothes if you do. We have actually already seen this in our previous readings of Exodus 19. I don't know if you noticed it. Exodus 19, 10 to 11, Yahweh said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready against the third day. For the third day Yahweh will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. As we know, this is the event that sets the pattern for the rest of Israel's worship. This is not something that requires direct instruction from God to understand. By the way, Jacob was able to discern the meaning of one's clothes in worship without any command from God. Genesis 35, Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress." And was with me in the way which I went. And also we see that David clearly understood the pattern of worship to require either washing or changing of one's clothes before coming into the temple. In Second Samuel 12, when David arose from the earth, he washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel. And he came into the house of Yahweh and worshipped. So he washes himself. He anoints himself, so he covers his hair with oil, so he looks fresh and clean and handsome, and he changes his clothes so that he can go and meet with God. Of course he does. Our boys, the scummy little blighters that they are, they bath every Saturday afternoon before they come into God's throne room on Sunday, and in the same way, they have Sunday clothes they set out every Saturday evening so that they will look their best in God's court And they won't turn up there wearing whatever shabby outfit they would ordinarily wear to play in the park. And the same I should hasten to add is true of myself. In biblical times, poverty was far greater than it is now. Part of the post-millennial effect of the gospel is that poverty in previously Christian nations is extremely rare. So while God accommodated himself to the poor who had no change of clothes to wear in worship back then... I am not sure that that will fly today, at least not in Rotorua, especially with so many op shops around. I don't think that any of us are in a situation where we cannot afford to find a good-looking top and pants or a nice dress reserved for Sundays, and if you are, the church is here for you. 
Now, don't understand, don't misunderstand the idea of Sunday best. I'm not saying that the clothes that you wear on Sunday are somehow sacred or holy, that you can't wear them the rest of the, the week. God does not mind if you wear them at other times. I'm just saying that as a matter of practical wisdom, it is a good idea to not wear them at least most of the time so that you, you know, don't wear them out. And of course, if you can afford lots of good clothes, you can take your pick on Sunday without having to worry about having a particular set set aside. But if you will not put aside your best clothes for Sunday, let me ask you, what are you communicating? I've seen people turn up to worship in Hawaiian shirts and jandals. Sometimes, I believe, just to flaunt their freedom in Christ. I know a man who is a godly and well-intentioned man, bless his soul, but he simply had not thought this through. He would wear a Star Wars t-shirt when he led the congregation in reading scripture and giving children's talks. What does that kind of thing communicate? Again, consider similar situations as we had before. What do you communicate turning up to a wedding wearing a Star Wars t-shirt? Or a funeral? Are you not saying to everyone present, quite clearly and with no real doubt as to your meaning, though you don't need to say anything with words, this isn't very important, this doesn't really matter to me, I can't be bothered doing any better than this. Or take the example that I used back when we looked at the regulative principle. Would you turn up to Buckingham Palace like that? What about a formal dinner with your mayor? Scripture actually uses this exact analogy. Malachi 1, 6-8, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Saith Yahweh of hosts unto you. O priests that despise my name, and ye say, wherein have we despised your name? You offer polluted bread upon my altar, and you say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, the table of Yahweh is contemptible, and when ye offer the blind for sacrifice, it is no evil, and when we offer the lame and the sick, it is no evil. Present it now to thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or will he accept thy person? saith Yahweh of hosts. God bids them to take their sacrifices to their governor and see if he is happy with what they're offering him. We've seen many times now that the sacrifices of animals are a symbol of the sacrifice of ourselves. If worship is a sacrifice, we must bring our first fruits without blemish. Is it uncomfortable to do so? Well, I, I hate to break this to you, but sacrifices uh, often are uncomfortable. Our purpose is not our comfort, but God's glory. We are offering of ourselves to God. Jandals may be more comfortable. I assure you I would rather be wearing shorts right now than long pants. But we all understand what clothing communicates in the dialect of our culture. Shorts would be too informal. Closed shoes and long pants are what men should be wearing to meet with their Lord and Creator in New Zealand. Our clothes should communicate our reverence and the dignity of the occasion. Ye shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am Yahweh. Leviticus 19.30 Now in summer, women, you are fortunate to suffer less discomfort, except uh, perhaps the head covering can be quite stifling, but in general, you have more freedom yet you also have more temptations. Our culture would have you believe that wearing a tank top and daisy dukes to church is really just fine. And the number of women who go to worship in yoga pants is something I still cannot get my head around. What is that communicating? 
you certainly learn something about a woman who wears such a modest clothes to worship without her having to say anything. She is screaming spiritual information about herself, not good information, without the need of any words. She declares her in-glory just as much as the heavens declare God's glory. Now, I'm not saying that you can tell a person's entire spiritual state from their clothes, of course. You don't know all of their story. Clothes are contextual. And I'm not saying the same clothes on two different people will always mean exactly the same thing. One woman might wear yoga pants because she wants to attract male attention. Another woman might wear yoga pants because she's oblivious to male attention, although I doubt how many women exist like that. But in neither case is her clothing communicating something good about her spiritual state. Immodesty due to lust and immodesty due to ignorance are not equal, but they are both bad. Women also have additional burdens, which men do not, which is that they have a greater range of clothes that they can choose to wear, and so they have to make more discerning decisions about what they wear. It is normal in our culture, for instance, for women to wear pants. I'm not going to make a hard and fast rule about this, but it does require you to consider what pants communicate compared to a dress or a skirt. Given the great importance that Scripture places on gender distinctions in worship, I think it is prudent to err toward more feminine clothing. No one who wants to look as feminine as possible wears pants. And so I think it is wise to bring God the best of your femininity as modestly as possible by wearing dresses and skirts and leaving the pants to the men, especially in our culture where men themselves are under attack. It is good to draw that line even more sharply. What shall we say then? Let me sum up for you. Clothing communicates. God cares about it, and he especially cares about it in our worship. We must be discerning in balancing our modesty before him and before others, on the one hand, with bringing the best of our substance before his throne on the other. Too much of our best, and we can divide the body into the haves and the have-nots, shaming our poorer brothers and lording it over them. Too much modesty, and we end up dressing down to the lowest common denominator and establishing a culture of slovenliness. Now, fortunately, I don't think that there is such an enormous gap between any of us here at Redwood that we need to worry too much about this. So my counsel and my exhortation to you is simply this. Wear your best when you come before the Lord. Honor and revere him with your clothing without magnifying yourself against his own glory with flashy displays or showing off. And this is an encouragement, not a rebuke. I believe that we are doing well at Redwood and I only want to build us up to a better understanding and appreciation of what we are doing so that we may better honor and praise our king. Let's 